Dear Father, we thank you for uh, your provision as uh, we learn constantly that we have to depend on you and sometimes um, in our own efforts we fail. So uh, we thank you that you do not fail um, and that we must simply depend on you in faith. And so uh, we ask for your guidance as we look at this period in Jesus' ministry after his rejection and uh, while he was teaching his disciples to depend on him and to depend on God for all things. Uh, we praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so in this point in Jesus' ministry, he is very focused on this metaphor of bread. He uses it again and again and again, and we get to see quite a few of these tonight. He is in the process of training his 12 disciples. He is not performing miracles for the purpose of Israel to come to faith, but for the purpose of the individual to come to faith, or for the, uh, those individuals who have faith. So we've got three divisions here. He's going to give us another one of his great discourses that John records for us called the uh, Bread of Life Discourse, in which he will give one of his great I Am statements. In fact, it's the first of his great I Am statements in the book of John. I am the bread of life. And then we're going to see some more of that wonderful teaching of the Pharisees that Jesus just obliterates. And then we will see some of the provisions that God has for the Gentiles. Now, as we go through these, we will notice two great distinctions. The distinction between the physical and the distinction between the spiritual. Jesus continues to try to teach his disciples and to teach all of Israel some spiritual concepts. And he will use physical correlations or physical metaphors, and they tend to get lost in those metaphors. They are too focused on the physical, too focused on the temporal, and they miss the spiritual import of what he is teaching. So we start with the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now there are two different feedings. One is the feeding of the 5,000, one is the feeding of the 4,000. Some try to conflate these, but as we'll see in Matthew, it's impossible to conflate these because he refers to both of them in one statement. But the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in a Jewish uh, context. It takes place in Bethsaida. And it happens right after the disciples come back from their missionary journey. If you remember from last week that Jesus sent all these disciples out and told them, go and share the word to the house of Israel, not to the uh, Gentiles. And so they are in progress. They come back and they tell Jesus all that they did and all that they taught. And then Jesus tells them to come away to a secluded place and take a rest. That secluded place is part of the desert lands of Bethsaida. This is where one of the disciples, actually two of the disciples, were sent to minister, uh, Philip being one of them. When they got ashore, though, it wasn't as private as they had anticipated. The large crowd had seen them leave, uh, and as they crossed the five miles to Bethsaida, this crowd had traveled 10 miles by land. They were in a hurry to get wherever Jesus was going. And when they got there, Jesus noticed that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering about lost. 
They didn't know quite who to follow, whether to follow Jesus or whether to follow the Pharisees. And so he began to teach them many things. Now, Jesus' public teaching was all in parables at this point. He spent quite a long time teaching them parables here, and they must have been uh, quite worn out. And the disciples noticed that as it starts to get late towards the time that one would eat, uh, they have no food for them, and they say, Jesus, let them go, stop teaching, send them out so that they can go find themselves food. Jesus tells the disciples, you give them food. Philip, who had been ministering in this region, knows just how deserted it is, knows that there is not much food for them, and he says, how are we going to feed them? It would take more than 200 denarii to feed all these people. Now, 200 denarii, one denarii is about a day's wage, about $200. So he's saying it would take more than $40,000 to feed all of these people. We'd need more than 6,000 loaves of bread. Now, he did pretty quick math, something I'm not capable of. I did that before coming up here. But he, he pretty much hit the nose or hit the nail on the head. It would take more than 6,000 loaves of bread to feed these 5,000 plus people, 5,000 men plus women and children. That is a pretty substantial amount, but Philip is only thinking in the physical. Now, Jesus is going to teach them three different lessons here. He's going to teach them that sometimes, as part of their ministry, they will need to cater to the physical needs of the people they're ministering to, just as Jesus is doing. But he is going to teach them at the same time that they are incapable of doing that by their own efforts. They are not capable of doing this alone without God. And so their third lesson is that they must depend on God to meet their own physical needs and to meet the physical needs of others. And so Jesus asks, how many loaves of bread are out there? And they find five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus takes these five loaves of bread and these two fish, and he blesses it using a standard Jewish blessing, recognizing that the bread came from God. He breaks the bread, and they divide it among the people who they've sat down on the grass in groups of 50 and 100. They end up feeding every single person, all 5,000 men and all the women and children that were also there. And when they were done, they filled 12 baskets full of the broken pieces of bread and fish. There was quite a bit left over after everyone was fed and satisfied. And now, after this, Jesus sends the disciples back across the Sea of Galilee, and he stays there, and he's going to go to a secluded place up on the mountain and pray. But the people who had just seen him perform this sign stopped him, and they wanted to make him king there in Bethsaida. And now he says no. He will not become the king in Bethsaida, and there's three reasons he says no. First of all, Israel has already rejected him as the king, as the Messiah. This was an unpardonable sin, and it can't be undone. The offer of the kingdom is not presently being offered. 
Secondly, they wanted to make him king in Galilee. And this is not, or this would not fulfill the prophecies of the Messiah. The Messiah has to be made king in Jerusalem, and he will be king over all 12 tribes of Israel, not just a portion of them. And lastly, their request was not for the Messiah and his kingdom that he came to offer, but they wanted to make him a human king, one that satisfied their physical wants and needs. They did not want what he came to offer spiritually. They wanted what he came to offer physically. And so he refuses them before going up to the mountain to pray. Now, while he is up on the mountain praying, his disciples are alone on the boat having a very rough go of it, trying to get across the Sea of Galilee. Because once again, a storm picks up, and it keeps them wrestling against the storm in the middle of the lake. Mark notes that it was evening when the boat was in the middle of the sea. Sea is about seven miles across, roughly the distance between Tacoma and Gig Harbor. They are stuck at the halfway point. Already by evening, they are straining at the oars for wind. The wind is against them. And it's not until the fourth watch of the night when Jesus walks to them. This is a storm that lasts at least nine hours that they're struggling against it. Evening was 6 p.m. And the fourth watch of the morning was about 3 a.m., between 3 and 6 a.m., the uh, Hebrews have a little saying about these four watches. The first watch is when the donkey brays. The second watch is when the dog howls. The third watch is when the baby suckles. And the fourth watch is when the wife starts to have a conversation with the husband. About 3 a.m. When they saw Jesus walking towards them on the water, they thought he was a ghost. They'd been struggling against these waves. They didn't have Jesus asleep in the front of the bow to wake up and have him calm the storm. And they once again thought they were about to die. They saw this ghost who they probably thought was the angel of death. They thought they were about to die. And so they are afraid and they cry out, terrified. But immediately he tells them, take courage. He comforts them in their fear. He tells them, do not be afraid. When Peter sees him and sees who it is, he tells him, Lord, command me to come out to you. So Jesus tells him, come. And he gets out of the boat and he walks on the water towards Jesus. And as he keeps his eyes on Jesus, he stays above the water. But when he gets distracted by the storm that surrounds him, despite the fact that he is presently safe, he becomes frightened and begins to sink. His faith is failing. But he cries out immediately and says, Lord, save me. Jesus does indeed save him, but he scolds him for his little faith. These apostles are going to need big faith to do what they have been called to do. And he is training them little by little, lesson by lesson, in order to build their faith. So he asks Peter, why did you doubt? Now Peter continued to uh, 
trust him and his trust failed him, probably because the wind didn't stop when he got out of the boat. He expected the trial to stop as soon as faith began. Sometimes you do have to weather it out in faith, but notice it's when they get back on the boat that Jesus calms the storm. And not only does he calm the storm, but they are immediately transported to their destination. John notes that as soon as the storm calmed, they were at their destination in Gennesaret. Mark notes that their fear had come from the fact that they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. They had not learned the lesson of dependence on God. And so when they depended on him for food, he was faithful. Why would he not be faithful in depending on him for something like this? Well, finally, we come here to the living bread, the bread of life discourse. Just as Jesus has been doing since the rejection, he teaches in parables. So unlike the other discourses that we've seen so far in John, this one's not quite as clear. They have some difficulty understanding it. In fact, they really don't like what he's saying. Because he comes and he tells them that he is the bread of life and they need to eat his body and drink his blood in order to have eternal life. And now this is a stumbling block for many who don't have faith. And in the same way, it is a stumbling block for all those in Israel who do not have faith. Well, the background of this is they come up to Jesus and they want a sign. Not just any sign, they specifically want a sign similar to Moses's sign of the manna. Their concern is on their physical needs. They won't accept just any sign of Jesus. They want him to feed them. John is careful in the language he uses, and he notes that the people, including the disciples, begin to murmur against Jesus. This is the same activity that the Israelites did in the wilderness with Moses when they murmured against him because all they were getting was manna. They did not trust Moses, the prophet of God. They did not like the gift that they were receiving from above. They wanted meat. Well, God didn't send meat. In fact, he sent a plague of meat. Too many pheasants for them to possibly eat, and the meat even began to rot. It was probably quite terrible, much better to just depend on the Lord and the gifts that he brings. But they want bread, and he says, I've got much better bread for you than Moses could ever give you. Not to mention the fact that Moses did not produce the manna, but God produced the manna. Moses was just there to announce it. Jesus is himself better bread, and he himself is the bread. So he tells them, they are to have faith in him for eternal life, and this would be equivalent to eating that bread. This was not clear enough for them. He tells them that this bread that he is offering is far better than the bread of Moses because it is eternal, it is heavenly, it is satisfying, and those who eat it will never die because they will be resurrected. 
he does equate eating it with believing in him. I believe that is in verse 49, or 47 rather. All right. So after this uh, discourse, there is some confusion once again between the physical and the spiritual. They just can't get over the fact that Jesus is using parables and they are interpreting his words far too literally. They are refusing to see the spiritual importance behind it and they are stumbling over his words. What does he mean, eat his body? What does he mean, drink his blood? How are we to do that? Well, Jesus, when he is privately with his disciples, explains this to them. The disciples still do not like this. In fact, in John 6, verse 66, it notes that many of his disciples did not believe and they left. This is a time of sifting. Those disciples who were following him and learning from him, but did not have faith in him, were not going to stick around any longer because he was telling them, I'm not here just to satisfy your physical needs. No, I'm not just going to do miracles at the drop of a hat because you want bread. He is coming to offer them something spiritual, salvation. However, none of the 12 apostles leave from him, even though one of them is an unbeliever. Jesus himself chose these 12. The 11 here confirm their faith, but Judas here begins his path of apostasy. John notes specifically that Jesus knew exactly who would betray him and that it was Judas that would betray him. All right, and now we come to another controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees. These are sometimes a bit humorous, but uh, kind of dismally humorous. Here it says, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem. They traveled three days just to respond to this incident. Someone had told them that Jesus and his disciples were eating without washing their hands. Now that might uh, seem like an overreaction, but it was specifically a reaction against his refusal to follow the tradition of the elders. Jesus followed the, here in verse 3, Mark explains to his Gentile audience exactly what the issue was. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the Mosaic law, nope, the traditions of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. Mark is explaining to his audience that Israel was under this burden of the tradition of the elders to wash in a ritual cleansing, not just for hygiene or cleanliness, but it was a ritual. In fact, they said that not washing your hands would bring you into poverty. They had a list of three things that would bring you into poverty. The other one that was equated with this was urinating naked on your bed. This was held to quite a high standard. 
if you did not do this, any food that you ate was considered unkosher. It was called unclean. The Mosaic Law never anywhere said this. The Mosaic Law does occasionally talk about hand washing, primarily for the priests before they performed sacrifices. This was required. But it nowhere indicates that the law demands for a Jew to wash his hands before eating. Now, this is just simply good hygiene. And perhaps Jesus did this at times for good hygiene, but he is purposefully going against the tradition of the elders because he is making a distinction between God's law and the corruption that the Pharisees had introduced into God's law. I think that is the only issue Jesus has with washing his hands before he eats. But the Pharisees specifically come up to him and ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders? Why are your disciples breaking the oral law? They eat their bread with unpure hands. Well, Jesus quotes to them a prophecy by Isaiah. This says, the people honor me with their lips, but, with their, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of man. Jesus is saying, you guys made this up, pure and simple. And now you are imposing it on the rest of Israel as if this is worship to God. In fact, the oral law was even raised above the Torah. They would allow at times for a Jew to break the Torah so long as the oral law was not transgressed. To go against the teaching of the scribes was worse than to go against the teachings of the Torah. Worse than that, the oral law at times gave the Pharisees permission to break the Torah. They would use it to go around the law of Moses, breaking the law of Moses and claiming that this was permitted under the oral law. Here Jesus targets that specifically. He says they neglect the commandment of God and they hold to the traditions of men. He was saying to them, you are experts in setting aside the commandments of God in order to keep your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. Now he's giving an example of how they do this. He said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of, your, of father and or mother is to be put to death. But the Pharisees had a practice, rather than supporting their parents financially when they came to a time of need, they would dedicate all their possessions to the service of the Lord, in which service they were also occupied, and so they could continue to use all of their earthly possessions, which had been dedicated to the Lord, without having to care financially for their parents. And so they would use this tradition of the elders to break the Mosaic law, disregarding their parents, which the law had commanded. And so Jesus says in this way, they are invalidating the word of God by their traditions, which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. This is just one example of many, in other words. The oral law is standing in the way of righteousness. It is not aiding it 
in any way. It is the stumbling block standing between Israel and the law. Now, when he was alone with his disciples, his disciples started to ask him what he meant by all of this, specifically his statement, listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, which is his statement that he uses to end a parable. So his disciples want to know, what does that mean? Jesus, you can sense that he almost gets frustrated with his disciples' inability to understand his messages after so long. He says, why are you so lacking in understanding also? Why is this also so difficult for you to understand? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Jesus is getting at the same issue he was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. True righteousness in the law is not in keeping it outwardly, but in keeping it inwardly. And that leads to keeping it outwardly. The Pharisees would keep the law outwardly when they had to, but the inward righteousness was broken continually. In fact, they had completely done away with the spiritual and only the physical remained. They were hypocrites. Jesus says, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles a man. It is the inward intention moving outwards that defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensualities, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within, and they defile a man. Breaking the law happened before the action ever took place. Breaking the law happened the moment someone decided to obfuscate God's perfect righteousness. All right, he says, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone, they are blind guides leading the blind. If any, or if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Jesus is saying, God did not send these teachers. God did not teach these teachers. These teachers are not taught by God. They are not his plants. These need to be uprooted. And in fact, this is what Jesus is doing. These False teachers have been planted in Israel, and they are corrupting the thoughts and minds of the Jews. And so Jesus comes to uproot what they are teaching, what they are planting, what they are instilling. But they are blind themselves, and they are leading those who are also blind. And the end for them is to fall into a pit probably referring to the judgment on Jerusalem in 70 AD, 
in which all those who did not put their faith into the Messiah will be caught up. After this interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus withdraws into Gentile territory. He does this, as uh, John 7, 1 tells us, because he knows that there is a plot to kill him. So he goes outside of their jurisdiction to Gentile territory, and he goes to four different places. He starts in Tyre and Sidon, where he encounters a Canaanite woman. This is a Gentile. This is in the, where she is, yeah, she's a Gentile. She's from the Phoenician clan of the Canaanites. She lives in the Roman district of Syria. And so she is a Syro-Phoenician Canaanite. When she sees Jesus, she cries out, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And Jesus does just what he did before when someone referred to him as the son of David after the rejection had taken place. He plainly ignores the woman. He did not answer her a word. This is not the basis on which he is performing miracles. He is not performing miracles as the Messiah of Israel, but the Savior of the world. His disciples came up and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. So Jesus engages in a conversation with the woman, and he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this sounds like a shutdown, doesn't it? But she persists. She came and began to bow down before him in act of worship, and she says, Lord, help me. No longer referring to him by his messianic title, son of David, but by her relationship to him directly. He is her creator, her God. Lord, help me. And so he answers her again, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now this also might sound insulting. In English it does. It doesn't sound as insulting in Greek. This word for dogs is a diminutive term, and it's not for mangy street dogs, but for household pets. But what he is saying is, what he has come to give in this first advent belongs to the children of Israel. He is not going to give the children's portion of food to the household pets. He is not calling her a dog, he is using a parable. He is teaching in the same way he teaches elsewhere. But rather than getting hung up on the physical aspect, she, unlike the Jews, understands the spiritual content. And so she answers him out of her faith. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She must have some Old Testament understanding, specifically Genesis 12.3, which says that the blessings given to Abraham would spill over to the Gentiles. She understands that she is not the recipient of the promises to Israel, but that she will benefit from their Messiah. 
And so she says, don't give me a full portion. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm just asking for the spillover. So she pleads with him on the basis of her personal need out of her faith. And this was the proper equation for God to perform a miracle through Jesus after the rejection. And so Jesus said to her, A woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Now, when he goes out from Tyre, he goes through Sidon, and he arrives in Decapolis. This is a Greek city-state. Ten different townships have come together into one, kind of like our tri-state or tri-cities in eastern Washington. This is the Decapolis, the ten cities. And it is on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, this is the region that Jesus and his disciples had gone to immediately after the rejection, where he showed his disciples the demoniac who was possessed by legion. And when he cast legion out, he told this demoniac that he could not follow him as a disciple because he had not, or he was not accepting Gentile disciples. But he did tell this Gentile man to go into Decapolis and tell them all that he had done. Now, in Decapolis, because he had cast these demons into their 2,000 pigs, and the pigs promptly committed uh, suicide, they sent him away. They didn't want him there. They didn't care that he had cured this neighbor of theirs of his demon possession. They just wanted him out. But God sent this demoniac to go plant seeds, and the seeds fell on fertile soil. And when Jesus arrives again in Decapolis, his reception is warm. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Now, as we'll see, this man was probably a Jew living in the region of Decapolis, based on how Jesus heals him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd into private by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And then, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, uh, I think that's Aramaic, and that is, be opened. That is Aramaic. He says, be opened. His tongue is loosed, his ears are opened, he can hear, and his speech impediment is gone. He begins to speak plainly. Jesus heals this man, and then he tells him, do not tell anyone. This is how he responds, or this is uh, what he tells the Jews after he heals them, after the rejection. Do not tell anyone. But the more he ordered them not to tell anyone, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. And so they were utterly astonished, saying he has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now, Jesus has taught his disciples many lessons in these few days, traveling through or back and forth across the Sea of Galilee multiple times, up through the region of Tyre and Sidon and back down to Decapolis. They've made one big circle and a bunch of zigzags along the way. And in each place, he has taught them about dependence on God and how to understand his teaching the spiritual behind the physical. 
and not to let the physical become a stumbling block to understanding the spiritual. And so he decides to recycle one of his lessons, this time to see if they finally understand. And so in Decapolis, it says, in those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. You can almost hear Jesus' teacher voice. What do you think we should do? Their response is disheartening, but they are just at the beginning of their lessons. Jesus will have a whole year of training them. His disciples answered him, where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? They have not yet learned the lesson. And so he asks them, how many loaves do you have? Hint, hint. They said seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. They served them to the people. I'm sure by now they recognize a pattern. They also had a few small fish. After he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large basketfuls, what was left over from their broken pieces. Now, this is not the same event. This is a different event. The first one took place in a Gentile or in a Jewish region. They had 12 basketfuls remaining. This takes place in a Gentile region, and they have seven baskets remaining. Some have postulated that the 12 baskets refer to the 12 tribes of Israel and that the seven would refer either to the seven tribes of Canaan, which they displaced, or, uh, slightly better, the seven laws of the Noahic covenant. I think there might be some similarities here or, or something, but I think the main point here is that there are leftovers. When Jesus has fully filled and satisfied the Jews, there are leftovers, there are crumbs still for the Gentiles. And even when he has fully filled and satisfied the Gentiles, there are still leftovers. Jesus' offer, Jesus the bread of life, will not be exhausted. There is enough for every single person. It says here that there were 4,000 there. Matthew notes that there were 4,000 plus women and children. Once again, he fed an enormous crowd. All right, after he sends these crowds away, Jesus gets into the boat and he goes to the region of Megadon, which is Megdol, which is where Mary Magdalene gets her name from. When he arrived on that side, the Pharisees and the Sadducees once again came up to him. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees are not necessarily friends. 
Their theology is incredibly opposed. This isn't like the Baptists and the Presbyterians fighting. This is like the Baptists and the Wesleyans arguing. They could not be further apart in their doctrine. But they both team up to come against Jesus. We'll see that the Herodians also team up to come against Jesus. Everyone who would be enemies is finding a common enemy in Jesus. And they are all teaching lies about him to try to discredit him. But here they come testing Jesus and they say to him, show a sign from heaven. And Jesus, of course, does not cater to their wishes. They did not come in faith. They did not come on the basis of a personal need. They came to test him. And perhaps if he showed them a sign, they would once again say, look, he does this by the power of demons. He already told them he will not give them another sign save for the sign of Jonah. So he says to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you not know how to discern the appearance of the sky? But, or do you not know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? Now, this is this signs of the times is not a reference to the rapture. It's not a reference to the second coming of Christ. It was a reference to the first coming of Christ. That is its context. That is what they missed because it was explicitly detailed for them by the prophet Daniel. Down to the number of years, you could even calculate it down to the very day that Jesus was presented. They missed it. They care so much about the physical, the weather patterns, they could tell you those, but they had no concern for the spiritual when their Messiah was arriving. So he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. Now this phrase, an evil and adulterous generation, is used again and again, but only after the rejection of Jesus. This specific generation of Israel was under condemnation for the revelation given to them and their rejection of it, and they would go to destruction as a generation. This generation would endure the worst massacre in their history to that point. Over a million Jews were killed in 70 AD because of their rejection of the Messiah. And there is very good evidence that not one believer in the Messiah was present because the believers had departed four years early, earlier after an anonymous letter titled Hebrews convinced them to separate from Pharisaic Judaism. They got out of Jerusalem before it was divinely destroyed. And so after this interaction with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they left and they went away. The disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And so Jesus, possibly overhearing their conversation, tells them to watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think he's wondering, do they get it yet? 
They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we didn't bring any bread. They are tripping over the physical and not understanding the spiritual. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets full you picked up? How is it that you do not understand that I do not speak to you concerning bread? But beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think he's about had it. They're just not getting this. And he spells it out about as clearly as he possibly could. And finally, they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in, Matthew, or in Mark's account, he adds the teaching of Herod, or the teaching of the Herodians. These were the three groups that were coming up against Jesus and leading the people astray, the sheep without a shepherd. What he is referring to by the leaven of the Pharisees, this false teaching of the Pharisees, is this accusation that Jesus is demon-possessed, and it's by the power of Beelzebub that he performs his miracles. In the next few sessions, in fact, we are halfway through tonight, so in the next half of this, uh, of these, uh, this study through the life of Messiah, we will start to see these Sadducees appearing more and more. And their contention with Jesus is that they claim he uh, does not accept the temple sacrifice or temple worship. Now, if you read Notes Packet 00, you'll see why. These Sadducees were not part of the Levitical priesthood. They were um, put in place by the Romans, and many, um, especially the Zealots, did not accept this Sadducean priesthood. And so they would even assassinate these Sadducees. But the teaching of the Sadducees, that is false teaching, that they are actually going to attempt to kill Jesus because of, is the teaching that he opposes the temple and the temple worship. But really it goes down to the leader of the Sadducees, the high priest Ananias, and Jesus overturning his temple or his tables of the money changers and letting loose all of the animals that were there at inflated rates for the people to purchase. This was really their contention with him. The contention with the Herodians, this sect of Jews who supported Herod's rule over Israel, they claimed that Jesus was a rebel against Rome. They also tried to bring up charges against him based on this. This was a false teaching. In fact, Jesus was not against Roman rule. Jesus instead teaches them to render unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It is uh, God or Jesus accepts God's divine sovereignty and his providence of governments. And so Jesus warns them, beware of this false teaching. They are about to plunge into the depths of Jesus' last few months 
and the lies are going to come from the right and the left. So he is telling them, beware. Be careful who you listen to. All right. With that, we'll finish. Next week, we continue to see Jesus training his disciples. There is a bit of reading there, Mark 8, or chapter 8 and 9, Matthew 16 through 18, Luke chapter 9, and John chapters 7 and 8. And in the student manual, that's homeworks number 84 through 101. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of your Son, who is the bread of life. We thank you that all that is required for us is faith. There is no work that we can do. The work has already been done. We receive that work which only you could do. We receive it by faith. So we thank you for that wonderful gift of salvation through the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.